The Start On Demand. On demand. It is the Start On Demand. Greg Mackling with you on behalf of Brett McGarry. Brett will be back tomorrow. Thanks for downloading, sharing, subscribing to the Start On Demand. Don Cherry, yes, we had to talk about it. You'll still be talking about it by the time you listen to this podcast and probably for days to come. We tackled it. Changes are coming to community policing. We interviewed Michael Redhead Champagne. He's a community activist doing some incredible work. He gives us his opinions on those changes, what the downside might be, and the downside at the forks. Yes, the rivers are high. What does it mean for the river trails? Will we be skating on the Red and Assiniboine rivers? Dale Howarchuk, an update on his cancer condition and the theory. Yes, I get to say it on the podcast. I couldn't say it on the air, but it feels so good to say the theory. Uh, Mackling, you can't say on a podcast either. What do you mean I can't say it on the podcast? All right, a-holes of theory. Sherry Benson Podolchuk joins us to talk about her role in this new documentary. That and much more coming up on The Start On Demand. Let's get right down to business. As you may know by now, one of the biggest names in Canadian hockey broadcasting has been turfed. At age 85, Don Cherry has reached the point where his outrageous comments have crossed the final line. On Saturday on Coach's Corner, Cherry implied immigrants can't be bothered to wear poppies for Remembrance Day. The Broadcast Standards Council in Canada says it got so many complaints following those comments, they actually had to shut down their system that takes complaints. They said they couldn't take anymore. And so late yesterday, Sportsnet announced Cherry is stepping down, effective immediately. Global National's Eric Sorensen now on what was the final straw. He is an iconic figure in the world of hockey and one of the most popular TV commentators in Canadian history. And I'm wearing their tie right now. All right, let's go. He has blurted controversial comments throughout his broadcast career, but this went too far. You people love, you, you they come here, whatever it is, you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey, at least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. His reference to immigrants, you people, did not prompt an immediate response from his colleague Ron McLean. But McLean soon realized he should have intervened. I owe you an apology too. That's the big thing that I want to emphasize. I sat there, uh, did not catch it, did not respond. Cherry's comments triggered a tsunami of criticism and an outpouring of support for the contribution of immigrants. People from all over the world came together to fight uh, alongside one another. It was a two demonstration of, of diversity because no one cares about what you look like. Finally, it forced the hand of his employer, Sportsnet, which stated, following further discussions with Don Cherry after Saturday night's broadcast, it has been decided it is the right time for him to immediately step down. Cherry himself did not issue an immediate apology. In an interview with one newspaper, he's quoted, I know what I said, and I meant it. He has said what he wanted to say for years and has not backed down. I mean, what do you seal? I mean, come on, what do you say? Are you a barbarian? Cherry has made derisive comments about indigenous people, the French, Swedes, Russians, and generally people he just didn't agree with. And put that in your pipe, you left-wing kooks. I would suspect that his sponsors also found out from their uh, clients that that they could no longer support uh, Don doing these kind of messages. Cherry was also controversial in his promotion of fighting and other aspects of hockey, but he seemed to revel in stirring things up, even about his own job. So I'm asking you guys, do I have a job? He doesn't have to ask anymore. 
Ironically, Cherry's final broadcast drew attention to his comments about immigrants, overshadowing his own intent to honor Canada's military veterans. Eric Sorensen, Global News, Toronto. Now, Eric Sorensen referenced comments to a newspaper, and uh, actually we have audio of Don Cherry after he was fired. He spoke to the Canadian press about the firing and his choice of words, and he offered no apology. I know what I said, and I meant it. Still do. Everybody in Canada should wear a poppy to honor our fallen soldiers. I speak the truth, and I walk the walk. If it was just about anyone wearing poppies, which is what uh, Don Cherry was quoted and what you just heard say in that audio, that would be one thing. Everyone should wear poppies, but that is not what was said. A reminder, this is what Cherry said. You people love, you, you they come here, whatever it is, you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey, at least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. These guys pay for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. These guys paid the, uh, the biggest price. Anyhow, I'm going to run it again for you great people. So again, it, 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 the implication there was you people and mm-hmm. then you come here. Right. So... There are a lot of people. There was no mistaking really what he was trying to say. I think I think most of us agree with eighty percent of what he said. Yeah, put it on a poppy to everyone. Everyone should wear a poppy. I think you and I agree with that. But the phrase "you people" is what's really hurting many. I think this morning and yesterday when they were hearing the comments, and we know every wave of immigration to Canada has heard that phrase: Irish, Ukrainian, Filipino, Jewish, French, Syrian. Somewhere along the way, there's some new Canadian that's had someone utter to them. Odds are, anyway. Not just newcomers. You people. Indigenous Canadians as well have heard this. It's It's been used to divide. And Charles Adler, our good friend, former host here at CJOB, host of the national show Charles Adler Tonight, explained his hurt like this. I know that over the years you've listened to many, many, many of my shows. I appreciate the loyalty. But I've got to speak truth here. You speak your truth, and I honestly believe you believe what you believe, and it's your truth, and I have to speak mine. You people are the most painful words in the English language for this person. I was eight years old, and it happened to be a person who lived in our house. We had a little duplex. We lived upstairs, and they lived downstairs. I don't even want to mention their name. Because they've got kids and grandkids and they may hear this and I don't want to shame their name. But the man of the house, as it was known back then, was not happy with the fridge. And my dad, he owned the house and so he owned the appliances and he asked my dad for a new fridge. He told the man that he'd want to replace the fridge as possible but it would have to be a used fridge because we couldn't afford a new anything. We couldn't afford new clothes. So he turned on my dad. I was there. I was eight, but I can't forget it. He turned on my dad and he said, Hitler should have finished the job with you people. I'll just let that sit with you. That's... Charles posted that comment last night and the comments from people there obviously didn't listen to what he was saying because so many people have gone back to him and said, how would you people be offensive? If that was the worst thing that was ever said to you as a child, what's your problem? 
listen to the whole thing, and we'll play it again if we have some time later in the show. The phrase that he heard was about the fact that you people shouldn't be here. It comes in hurtful, hurtful, stinging, hateful, things like that. It comes in more innocuous ways. Another woman replied to Charles after he shared that and said, I'm a single mom. Do you know how many times someone also used the phrase you people as to lump in single moms or women or journalists or people you don't like? It's the phrase you people. 7806868. I know you won't be shy to share your thoughts with us. One of our texters already saying Don Cherry should have used his plas- platform as a teaching moment in uniting all newcomers, uh, uniting immigrants, and celebrating the vets by wearing a poppy. He missed it. Now he has to pay the price. He couldn't express himself in a way not to offend. We are all immigrants. <laughs> We're talking about changes to community policing and what that means for the city of Winnipeg and what we say neighborhoods that count on policing uh, and, and want to see and want to see more police in their community, not less. So this is in response to the announcement on Friday from Winnipeg Police Service that it's going to reassign some 74 officers to general patrol and investigative units. And they're pulling those officers from traffic, from community relations, uh, from station duty, and also from Project Devote, which is a unit that works on cold cases for missing and murdered Indigenous women. The police chief says the moves are temporary. They're there just to meet the backlog in homicides. But the moves, the changes, have prompted a whole host of reactions. There's been some applause that change is happening. There's been some concerns raised and, of course, questions. Michael Redhead Champagne is a community activist, and he's also one of the creators behind the North End movement, Meet Me at the Bell Tower. They meet weekly, every week, every Friday night, and they've done so since 2011, which is actually the year Winnipeg saw 41 homicides, one more than the number we've seen so far in 2019. Michael joins us now, and we're so thrilled you got up this early in the morning. Mike, good morning. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's just start, first of all, with the mood and the sentiment uh, among the people that you've been talking to. When you look back to 2011 to now, the year you launched this Meet Me at the Bell Tower, do you feel like it's worse? Do you feel like it's similar? How, what's your comparison and, and how, how you're feeling? Well, it's interesting, right? I think um, in 2010 and 2011, Aboriginal youth opportunities began, um, I think, um, in the gap that was left behind by a lot of the anti-gang programming that was happening in the community. And it was like, targeted towards uh, Indigenous young people, inner city young people, those, had, those people that were involved with the justice system. But a lot of those anti-gang programs ended up going away. So in its absence... Um, Volunteers and community people like myself uh, founded uh, Aboriginal Youth Opportunities and Meet Me at the Bell Tower. Now, um, unfortunately, uh, it feels very similar to how it felt in 2011 this year um, because there have been so many homicides and because so many of these things have been affecting children. And I think that uh, one thing that I know is really different is that in 2011 versus now is that now we have a lot more um, organizing in the volunteer sector in the uh, community. And I think that, like, before in 2011, the Bear Clan wasn't active. Meet, uh, you know, Meet Me at the Bell Tower was not active. Uh, Drag the Red was not active. 204 Neighborhood Watch was not active. Like, there was a bunch of uh, uh, groups and helpers in the community that were not around in 2011 that are here today. Um, that their core purpose is to try to stop violence in the community. 
So it's extremely frustrating for organizers and volunteers and helpers and citizens like myself, because right now it feels very similar to 2011. And we have so many more, I guess, community-based institutions. But I think basically what is happening is in the absence of having um, systemic support, community is trying the best that we can, but we're really struggling still. So here we are nine years later, and these community, you just listed an incredible number of community programs that exist now that didn't exist then when we had this record homicide rate. So despite the creation and presence of those groups, here we are in the midst of uh, of this crime wave, this surge in, in homicides in our community. What do you think's at the core of this, Michael? Um, I think there's a couple different things that are at the core of this. I think um, I've been kind of ad nauseum since AO and Bell Tower began, just trying to explain to people that Indigenous young people and and those living in the inner city under conditions of poverty um, are really struggling. And I think that when people are struggling in those conditions of poverty, um, lack of stable housing coming from the justice system or child welfare system, we end up having situations where people are in such pain that they don't know what to do with it. And then our systems end up getting overloaded. Something I really want to mention, because I know that Winnipeg's heart collectively broke um, in the situation of uh, young Hunter, the the, the three-year-old boy who was murdered in the North End here. Um, I know that all of our hearts broke. And I think it's important for us to think about um, the details that we know about that situation um, and focus on things that we can do there. I know that the police talked about how they're pulling back on some of their resources in different areas like community relations and and project to vote and whatnot because they want those police officers to be on foot patrol. But um, I think that it's really important for us to think about how police um, are well positioned, I think, to help build relationships and prevent violence from happening in the community. Um, And there are some things in Hunter's story that can help us. Uh, Protection orders need to be addressed and looked at. The way that Winnipeg police and we as a city um, respond to domestic violence um, really need to be addressed. So there's the protection order factor. Um, And November is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I implore the citizens of Winnipeg and people listening right now to think about what we can do as a community, as a society to help people that are struggling with domestic violence, uh, victims, perpetrators, families that are affected, communities that are affected. Um, We have to think about protection orders and domestic violence when it comes to keeping community members safe. With these changes, and we only have about 20 seconds, so apologies for that, Michael. Are you concerned with them pulling back on some of these resources? Or you appreciate what they're trying to do? Or, or do, you, do you have one message you would say to police right now? I'm concerned with the changes that they're making, and I would recommend that they go back to community and ask what community members need, because I bet you community is not going to say, we need more enforcement. They're going to say, we need more relationship building and we need more prevention. Thank you for your time, Michael Redhead Champagne, community activist, organizer of the group Meet Me at the Bell Tower, along with the Aboriginal Youth Movement and Centre. You've done a lot of great work in the community, Michael, and we wish you well. I've known Michael for nine years. He's doing incredible things. Thanks for your time this morning, Michael. It's time for Breakfast with the Bombers. It's brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. You mentioned this, Loren, the idea that we had a sense that the Bombers could win, but did we believe they would win? I did not. 
no experts outside of this market were picking the Winnipeg Blue Bombers to defeat the Calgary Stampeders, let alone what the Blue Bomber defense did to limit quarterback Bo Levi-Mitchell. You've been hearing from Bo Levi in Kelly's Sports this morning, just 116 yards passing en route to a 35-14 waxing of the defending Grey Cup champions, a 33-yard touchdown from Nick Dembski, just over five minutes into the third quarter, were the first of 27 unanswered Blue Bomber points in the second half. If you were with us yesterday, you would have heard the game highlights. You want to hear them again? Yeah, that's what I thought. And he takes it to the left and hands it off, but Willie, oh no, Willie Jefferson can't make the tackle. The Bombers, I thought we're going to get Reggie Begleton on a sweep and Willie Jefferson and get into the end zone. Running back now, Mitchell back to pass. And he fires and it's intercepted at the Bomber 8. I believe there's a fight for the ball between Huff and the Bomber defender. Pressure coming. He's scrambling around in the end zone and he throws it away. He just spiked the ball to the ground. The ball down, the kick is up, and it is good. And uh, Mitchell with a fake and a quick pass down to Begleton at the 10-yard line. He's to the 5. He's in for the touchdown. The kick will come from the right hash. It's on the tee. It's in the air. It's long enough, and it is good. Justin Medlock. Boy, that's a big kick, a 52-yard field goal. And on a minus 13 day, now he's going to give it to Dembski, and he's across the 30, the 25, the 20, 10. Touchdown, Blue Bombers. Nick Dembski on a run up the middle. Man, that one felt good. I can't lie. Better than the one in Regina last year? In, you in know, the semi? <laughs> you know, uh, you know they're, they're, they're pretty equal, I'll say. But, you know, OB Sweeter, get one in Regina this year, that's for sure. Yeah. Tell me about your touchdown run in the third quarter. Yeah, I mean, the O-line did a great job blocking. Um, you know, I, I made a cut, and the, re- the rest was history. I put my head back around as fast as I could. That's really what happened. Ball on the tee in the air. Looks pretty good from here. And it is a 42-yard field goal by Justin Medlock. Good block by Harris. A long throw for Darvin Adams at the 30. He's got it, the 25. Darvin Adams, touchdown, Blue Bombers. Do you feel that score... Uh, kind of left the Stampeders in a spot where they're thinking, oh, maybe it's not going to be our day? Uh, actually, Bob, I really wasn't even thinking about the you know, the Stampeders. Those guys did a great job. We were just so focused on us and so focused on, you know, our team that, you know, I think that's what really put us ahead, you know, as far as like, you know, winning with us, within ourselves and not worrying about what other people do. Mitchell again back to pass, throws, and it's all, is it picked off? Yes, Nick Taylor intercepted. Tell me about your interception. Oh, man, I, I just was looking at both. <laughs> I just stared at him, and Kamar came off the line real slow, so I'm like, okay, what's going on? I saw the ball come out, and it came right to me. I was like, oh, let me see how I can get to it, and Kamar actually grabbed my arm, and I thought I dropped it, and the next thing you know, I saw the ball still in my arm, so I was like, oh, shit, keep, let's get up and run. Ball on the tee, kick in the air, and it hit the upright and fell through. Wow. Trevor's going to keep it. And he's got room around the left. He's going to score the 10, the 5, touchdown, Strebler. 
Blue Bomber quarterback Chris Strebler. Chris, congratulations on a tremendous effort by your team. Oh, thank you so much. Such a such a great team win, and just so many guys stepping up and making plays all, all around the board, all three phases. So, um, just couldn't feel better about this team win. Tell me when you felt uh, you were going to be good to go and uh, close to being at your best today. Um, you know, uh, just a lot of work th throughout the week with uh, with trainers and with the team, and just I just wanted to be out there with my teammates, and all those guys are fighting through so much stuff, and. It's nothing extra for me to go out there and fight through whatever I'm going through. So just want to be out there and fight with those guys. They all fight extremely hard and play extremely hard. So the blue and gold are on their way to Regina to face the Rough Riders in the West Final for the right to head to Calgary for the Grey Cup. Just like that, Loren, we are five days away from learning whether or not the Blue Bombers will make it to the Grey Cup for the first time I'm since feeling good. 2011. Feeling good. I, uh, I think we have the right kind of momentum. I think there's like a whole host of spark, the right word that's been created yes, by uh, Stradler and Claros. Like the, the dynamics there sort of change the momentum. Continue. So Keep it's saying not more just things coming like off that. the wind. It's, it's something different. I think something felt different Sunday. And I don't know how many times in the last two weeks, it doesn't matter who's at QB, I yell out, oh, this kid can play. Like I'm yelling <laughs> that. And so it feels good. It feels different. We start this hour at the Forks. We have been talking for the last, oh, I would say five or six years about how Winnipeg has turned around its attitude. We love about, our winter. About winter. Yeah. We're starting to celebrate the fact that we are a winter city. And a big part of that, Loren, are the warming huts on the river. And the warming huts are necessarily, are necessary, pardon me, because... We have started skating on the river, the Red River Mutual Trail, uh, at different points in the last decade or so has been the longest skating rink in the world. And well, I think a lot of people are asking when they drive over whatever bridge might cross any river in Winnipeg right now, is that going to prevent us from skating on the river this winter? The water's still pretty high. Well, let's ask Larissa Peck, Manager of Marketing and Communications with the Forks North Portage Partnership. Good morning, Larissa. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning, Greg. So explain to us what's the concern here. We've dealt with high waters before, sometimes in the fall, but what's different this year about what we're seeing down at the Forks? Mm -hmm. Well, this year, the river is very high, as you noted. Um, so that's a little bit of uncharted territory for us when it comes to building a river trail. Uh, but it's not something that we're ready to write off just yet. We know that it's a, a really big, beloved um, community amenity. Um, and we really hope that that's something that we can continue to bring to the community this year, this winter. Um, but of course, safety is obviously our number one priority. Um, and we'll be monitoring the river very, very closely. The we... river is a living body of water. And so there are so many factors that go into building a river trail. Um, and we're we're checking on those all the time. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Do we know, you know, I've heard various kind of myths or old wives tales, if you would, about what happens when the water freezes at a certain height and how it can create, you know, air pockets or other things when those water levels eventually go down. What's the concern with it freezing at this height or this level, um, rather? There, there's so many factors that go into determining whether it's going to be a good freeze for a river trail. Um, water height is one of them. Um, but really and truly, like, we're just, we're just monitoring the entire situation for safety and um, 
if, if it's not possible to create a river trail this year, we will certainly have some exciting amenities anyways. Um, you mentioned warming heights. Whether we're on the river trail or not, um, we, we need to stay warm. And we, we have um, selected this year's winners. Um, so that announcement is coming up very shortly, and those will be getting built very shortly. Um, and so those will, the warming huts will still be at the forks on site, uh, no matter whether we're skating on the river or not. And of course, there's a, an extensive network of trails uh, that does not include the river, right, Larissa? Of course, yes. We usually have about two kilometers of trails on land at the forks. Um, and Again, if if something like the River Trail wasn't able to be built this year, we would, of course, be exploring other options for skating on land safely. Mm -hmm. Of course, the river hasn't frozen yet. When do we make the call? When does the Forks decide, Okay, we might have to look at plan B or C? Is it is it weeks away, days away? Uh, I would say it's weeks away. We, we've we never uh, had a trail before December 15th in the last 10 years. So we still have a few weeks before we're making a call. Um, and, and even and even then, when, when we do have a trail, we are monitoring the ice every single day um, to, to ensure that it's safe. And um, we're making that call on a daily basis every single year. Do you know the last time we've had this kind of consideration in place or we've, we've, I know we've talked about it because of warm weather, Larissa, about the idea that, you know, it's almost too warm to get on the river, but now we know it's really cold. We know that river's going to freeze. Have we been in this situation before when the river levels have impacted whether or not we may have that trail? I'm not sure about river levels, but we have had situations. I know a couple of years ago in February, we had a, a rainstorm and that kind of put a kibosh on the river um, for the rest of the season because it just didn't freeze nicely after that. It was too um, bumpy and, and whatnot to to rebuild the skating trail. So weather is always a factor in um, in creating a good good conditions for skating on the river. So if we put the river aside and take it out of the equation, we you just mentioned extensive network of trails for skating. Of course, the skating rink right up at the pavilion there. How quickly could we see ice if weather continues to to be below zero? Yeah, I mean, below zero is the key. Um, it could be it could be really in the next couple of weeks. Of course, yeah, um, that one tends to open a lot earlier than, of course, the river and, and the online trails. That's usually the first. Uh, that's the barometer for whether winter is here. Um, our holiday bazaar is coming up on November 29th. Um, and that's the night that we will flip the switch and light up all of Arctic Glacier Winter Park. So that's all of the onland uh, network of trails and the, all of the lighting. Um, so we're hoping to have some skating happening that night too. Fantastic. Larissa, thank you for this. And we'll keep our fingers crossed for the river. It's nice Certainly to know well. that we're not completely dependent on the, the level of the Cinnaboyne and the Red River for enjoying some excitement uh, out on the ice at the Forks this winter. Thanks again. Thank you. I hope. I, yeah, it's such a thing. You know what? It's the one time, one thing you really do embrace in the cold. And so it's also a bragging component. Do you not find? Like, I will bring people oh, yes. from outside the city down to the forks and you are getting on that river and you are skating because then you can say you did. My buddy Scott from San Diego skated it last year. He said it was a thrill of a lifetime. want to direct you to cjob.com our question of the day it's brought to you by credit aid helping manitobans get out of debt since 1992 visit creditaid.ca or give them a call 
204-987-6890. We wanted to know how you were planning to honor Remembrance Day this year. You had three choices, and the number one choice was to watch or listen to a service. Over 51% of you said you'd be observing Remembrance Day that way. And 17%, that's a big number, said they would attend a formal service. We'll have a new question of the day up for you at cjob.com at some point this morning, but we invite you to check that out every single day. McNabb, lots of commentary, of course, on the Don Cherry situation. And, you know, I've been trying to keep up with the text messages best that I can. But here's the thing for me. It's not even about what Don Cherry said. It was the fact that he was offered an opportunity to issue an apology when it was pointed out that what he said may have been offensive to certain people. And if you're in my mind, if you're incapable of processing that looking around and going, you know what? I understand that I might've offended some people. That was not my intention. My intention was to do this in Cherry's case, bring attention to the fact that he wishes more people were wearing poppies. Why wouldn't you just simply take that opportunity to promote what it was that was most important to you without getting bogged down by something that either you said very intentionally or something you said by accident, not realizing the power of your words and how you constructed a sentence. Right. And it it isn't about him addressing everyone should wear a poppy. We've said this repeatedly now. It was you people, you come from other countries, or you come to this country, rather. It was you people, you come to this country. So it was very much about people who were not born in Canada, which is 87% of us. So there's that. There's Mm -hmm. a whole other aside. But what since happened in the conversation is I would say 80% of our listeners are saying, good for you, Don Cherry. And, and more than that, they want to know, is there science behind this? Like Maybe there's science behind the idea that uh, new Canadians might not be wearing the poppy as much. There isn't, and there's also no reason for it. This isn't, that is not part of the conversation. The conversation, if he wanted it to be, should have been about everyone should wear a poppy. It doesn't matter where you come from, how long you've been here. If you're Indigenous to Canada, it shouldn't matter. So the whole like, oh, maybe he was speaking the truth. No, he wasn't. That wasn't the truth. There is no truth to that statement. It's it's completely ridiculous. And it puts people in a place where they have to defend their actions on a day when it should be about pointing to the actions of others, i.e. our veterans. So some people are upset. Oh, this happened on Remembrance Day. And so Cherry had the opportunity to elevate his platform. The spotlight was squarely on Don Cherry yesterday after he said what he said on Saturday. He chose to say nothing Sunday. He had an opportunity yesterday to turn this into a positive in my mind and to come out and to be humble and to say, I didn't realize the way I phrased what I said could be hurtful to other people. That, once again, that was not my intention. My intention was to elevate the status of our veterans, to honor those that have given the ultimate sacrifice. I wear a poppy. I do it proudly. I wish more people would do so. He could have said that and turned it into a genuine teaching moment. Instead, he made it all about himself and said, no, you're trying to stifle me. You're trying to make this about silencing me and limiting my ability to express myself. He could have swallowed his pride and done and did 
what he has honored veterans for for the entire time he's been on television. That's one of the things that I actually liked about Don Cherry was his commitment to honoring veterans and their sacrifice. And now he's taking, he didn't take the opportunity that was given to him because he got blinded by people trying to shut him up in his mind. The thing about this is that it sh- what needs to happen next is that we use this as a learning curve or a learning 100%. tool, right? So it's the same thing that happened post Justin Trudeau's brown face, black face controversy. And there's all sorts of people commenting online, social media, into our show saying, well, who hasn't had a controversial comment in the past? And, and we learned from it. And we moved on. And what's so offensive about it? And the idea was to understand why it was offensive, the history behind that, and then and then go from there. The hope here is that, okay, fine, you don't think he said any offensive, but how about you put yourself in someone else's shoes for a second who says, yes, saying you people and implying immigrants don't wear poppies is offensive to me for the following reasons. Can you hear my side of it for a second? And have you ever stopped to use the language like you people or them or they or that those kinds of words, Mm -hmm. those pronouns that, that impact people in a really hurtful way? And what can you learn from that? Because... It isn't about whether you find it offensive or not. It's about listening to the people who did, and is there something to learn from that? And what's more painful than all of that, Loren, is the fact that the vitriol, a lot of the commentary has gotten really dark. A lot of the comments that those who are speaking out in support of Cherry being fired or speaking about the fact that that what Cherry said was wrong are now being subjected to some really nasty stuff. And to the point where it's sort of proving the overall point that we've got a long way to go in terms of unity in our country, a lot of racial slurs being directed at individuals, in particular those in the media mm-hmm. who are of uh, of of uh, people of color, of di- color yep. di- you know, for the, that maybe their 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 parents were new Canadians, they're second generation Canadians, and that's what's really bothering me. It's not. It's gone now the uh, complete other way where people are so angry about how Don Cherry was treated, people are opening the door and believing that they can say whatever they want to people. And and that just proves in my mind that we have such a long way to go in terms of understanding one another in our country. Now, he's a man who's paid for his opinions and the controversy that he's generated from those opinions have taken him a lot of places. It's and made it's, it's Rogers made his- millions of dollars. It's made CBC millions of dollars. They know they know who he is. This is not brand new for him. No. And so the idea that he would ever step back from his comments and actually apologize for them, I don't know if he's done that too often in the past. There has been times where he said, okay, yeah, I know maybe I went he too far. He apologized about making fun of Ron McClain for seal. eating seal meat. Right, to use the term savage. What are you a savage for right. eating seal and meat? Right, and so yeah. he heard from some people that quote were important to him, and so he backed off from those comments. So that's more important in his mind? Right, and I think what's missing from this is that, yes, he's a, he's allowed to have an opinion, and he's allowed to voice that, and there is such thing as freedom of speech. He's 100%. hired by a private company who has private dollars, and if right. they don't like what he said, then they can also fire him. Now, can you go down the road of arguing that? They didn't go right to firing. They I, did not go right to firing. They gave him an opportunity to walk back his comments, and he said he declined to do so in fear of becoming some sort of robot. Yes. I think, okay, that's fair. So they, they, they didn't fire him right away. And Ron McLean 
was guilty, sitting, nodding his head in, in agreement with Don Cherry. Ron McLean, the very next day, next opportunity, apologized for agreeing with Don and not stepping in and basically saving him from himself. I was very disappointed in Ron McLean, and is and I, I give his apology eight out of ten. Because what was missing for you? It, it was just it, he not, was he not, was still not, not taking complete enough. Yeah, he was still it was still Don's fault, and and the, the 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 idea that he didn't acknowledge that he gave the thumbs up at the end, and if there was something technically going on that prevented Ron from hearing all of Don's comments, I would have liked to have heard that, heard that as well because it just felt like something was missing from Ron's apology. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, we've all been in as broadcasters in that position where sometimes you're not even, you know, it sounds terrible to say, but in that moment, particularly in television, you have someone talking in your ear sure. all the time and you're half listening and you're looking down at the monitor and someone's giving you cues, the time's almost up. And did he even hear what Don said in that moment? And then we were just having this conversation gave it a thumbs up. off air. I know he gave it a thumbs up, but he often, is that just your action? You give something a I thumbs don't know. up, but, but. If he had interjected at that moment, would Don have doubled down? Would Cherry have doubled down? Or would he have clarified, oh, oh I didn't mean you people. I don't know. I think that the, re- the reason why we're not hearing Don Cherry say my words were taken out of context, right? What I really meant was this is because that they weren't. That's what he meant. And, and that's he what says, we need to get back to is that he, he meant the you people. He meant mm-hmm. people who are not born in Canada. And, and the worst part of... But all that is, again, is that all of us, I can go back in my own family's history. I I have stories from my ancestors of Irish or Scottish descent who were treated a certain way. People who are Ukrainian Manitobans have stories about how they felt when they first came over. Japanese internment camps. There's whole there's a whole host of immigrant waves of immigration that have come through Canada that have felt what it feels like to be slagged under you people. And that is why it hurts and all of us need to listen to that. The people that were here first feel it all the time. Loren, I know you're a huge hockey fan. Um, how do I do this delicately? Are you old enough to <laughs> have known and followed the career of Dale Howarchuk as a Winnipeg Jet? Absolutely. We have a old pennant, like a replica that we hang up in our uh, basement. And when it come, came to, you know, which jersey should we get for dad or my husband, Howard Chuck was one of the top choices and remains so despite the Jets 2.0. So yeah, I'm I'm not old enough. I'm young enough. Very good. Okay. I like the way you're putting that. <laughs> I apologize. Did I, did I go down a wrong no, road God, there? No. He was drafted by the Winnipeg Jets first overall in 1981 and Tim Campbell joins us now. NHL.com. Tim was a sports writer with the Winnipeg Free Press for for long enough time, but I don't know, Tim, were you, were you writing for the pre, Free Press when Howard Chuck was drafted by the Jets. I don't think you're 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 that vintage, are you? I was not. Uh, I started at the Free Press in uh, for the 1987-88 season, so just at the end of Dale's career before he was traded away. Well, and uh, arguably two of his uh, finest seasons, 86-87 uh, when he scored 47 goals, 87-88 when he had 44, and then, of course, that memorable series uh, when the Winnipeg Jets uh, had a 3-1 series lead over the Edmonton Oilers only to go down in seven games. Just before we find out how Dale Howarchuk is doing in this battle with cancer just for those that maybe never got to see him play just share with us in in your view just how special a player Dale Howarchuk was well I think you know there'll be a lot of fans remember uh, you know his soft hands uh, he was a 
he wasn't the, I wouldn't say he was the best skater in the league, but he was a pretty good skater, but he had, you know, he had the gift of hands and it's, it's, it's not a blessing that every pro player has. So Dale could make a lot of cool things happen with the puck. But the thing I, you know, it always sticks with me was how smart he was. He, uh, he could see the ice. He he could anticipate the plays. Uh, he knew where his teammates would go or where they would be. So you put a good brain with a really good pair of hands and you get a pretty special player, a Hall of Fame player like Dale Howardchuk. Facing another kind of battle now, and you spoke to him about his cancer diagnosis, stomach cancer. And and what I thought was really remarkable is the way he also made, you know, used that brain of his to make it relatable to people in terms of how grueling the chemotherapy has been and how he compared that to, what was it, like being bag skated for a week? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a bit about that conversation in terms of the challenges that he faces right now to get through these next few rounds of chemo. Yeah, Loren. I, you know, I think you've you've kind of you've kind of hit on the the real important point for me uh, that, well, you know, when I talked to him, it, it was what you would expect, I guess, from Dale Howarchuk. Uh, he's a re- he's always been a real thinker, um, and so he his focus to me was so impressive. I mean, he's in he's in a fight for his life here right now. Really, this is a really serious health battle that he's facing. He's in the middle of it. Um, he's probably just starting to feel better here yesterday or maybe today after his fourth round of, of chemotherapy, which was last Tuesday. Uh, and I talked to him just before that, a couple of days before that was to start. So, um, but you know, he, he's, he's had a lot of time to think about how this is going to go and how he's going to react to it and how he's going to approach it and how positive he's going to be and how determined he's going to be and how he's going to use his time um, you know, all of these things he's, he's kind of plotted out um, and he's made his own plan to, you know, coincide with the plan that uh, his doctors and his medical team have set for him. So um, he, he's kind of, you know, he, he's, he's drawn it up, I guess, as, as almost like a hockey game plan. And he used a lot of hockey analogies uh, when we talked about it. Um, the bag skating thing was was one real important comparison. Um, that's kind of how he described the chemotherapy. So, um, you know, but to me, over time, that's that's been Dale Howarchuk to a T. He's always been a thinker. Um, you know, after he was done playing, he, you know, he took it. He took some time for his family for a number of years, but then he came to coaching and realized, I think, over the past uh, nine or ten years, he's been the coach of the Barry Colts in the Ontario Hockey League, it's turned out he's been pretty good at, at coaching, um, that the brain he has for hockey and for life uh, has been a good fit for helping develop young players. Uh, Mark Shifley, of course, as everyone in Winnipeg knows, has been among those those players that Dale's had a really important hand in, in developing as a, as a pro player. So um, Dale's, to me, always been resistant. He's always been a little bit on the modest side, I would say, mm-hmm. kind of bordering towards humble, and that really fits well in Winnipeg. Um, and, you know, he's he's got some tough days ahead of him, but I know there are a lot of people in the hockey world that – that have them in their thoughts and prayers. Yeah, well, here in Winnipeg, it's funny, uh, so often, just like the Jets themselves, Tim, uh, we didn't really know what we had until they were gone, and Dale Howarchuk, I think, was a p- prime example of that. Uh, many adored him, thousands thought he was an incredible hockey player, but but still, I don't think it was until he left 
and went to Buffalo and then moved on to St. Louis and Philadelphia. And then the, the, the effort and, and, the, and the support to get him into the Hall of Fame, despite not winning a Stanley Cup, boy, that you could hear the yells from Winnipeg from all across North America for that to happen. Dale Howarchuk is uh, one of hockey's greatest players in this town. Well, yeah, and I agree. I agree with you, Greg. Like it was maybe a, a little bit of of after appreciation. I, you know, I wasn't here for for many of the best years early in his career. I mean, you know, won the Calder Trophy and and a couple of those Jets teams in the mid early to mid '80s were pretty darn strong. The 1985. Uh, 84, 85 team is one that the guys involved that you know talk about frequently. All those 30 goal scorers, uh, you know, and I run into Thomas Steen and Paul McLean and Randy Carlisle and um, a lot of those players. I, I seem to you know cross paths and paths with them quite a lot these days. And that's one team that always comes up in conversation. How really how good they were and. Um, you know, and how unfortunate the injury was to Howard Chuck in the playoffs. But as always, running up against the Oilers uh, in the postseason, and that was never a good result in those days for uh, the Jets and their fans. Uh, but, you know, after after he was gone, there were some good good years in Buffalo, but then the injuries started to, you know, come into play. And, and um, you know, I, I, I don't think Winnipeggers maybe underappreciated Howard Chuck when he was here because he was prolific when he played here at, you know, at the peak of his career, those great years in the eighties. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of crazy things happening with the team in transition uh, once he became more of a veteran player. And I, I really do think maybe that the appreciation waned a little bit too quickly here in Winnipeg with management or coaches, uh, you know, what have you. It's all water under the bridge. But um, in the end, though, I think the important thing to remember is that, you know, Dale's connection to Winnipeg has remained strong through all the years. I mean, really, he's he's an Ontario guy from the Toronto area, but he's he's always kind of been a Manitoban at heart as well. And and that's something that he's fostered and, and cherished, I know, over uh, over his time and and to me, that's what kind of makes him a little bit extra special around here. Yeah, he golfed in the Manitoba Amateur and did well several times. Had a cottage here, married a Winnipeg gal. And the legend had it that he even had a Winnipeg Jets logo on the bottom of his swimming pool in Charleswood back in the day. So Dale Howarchuk, absolutely beloved in this community. And uh, so glad you got to speak with him, uh, Tim. And thanks for sharing that with us on NHL.com. Absolutely uh, super special to get an update on uh, on number 10. No problem. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on to share some of that. Yeah, we appreciate it very much. Tim Campbell, NHL.com. You can catch his work there. I think the thing about Howard Chuck, too, that Tim just kind of hit the nail on the head with is the idea of his humbleness. And so it's also you like the person more when you learn more about them afterwards. So we loved him as a player, you know, in the mid to late 80s. And then he leaves and you appreciate that talent. But because he kept coming back and doing the things he's done in Winnipeg, you also admire the man outside of the uniform. It was a different time in the 80s and early 90s, you know, when Dale Howard Chuck was here, we didn't have the social media, didn't have the media coverage sure. overall. We didn't really get to know Dale Howard Chuck the way we've gotten to know some other players. But uh, let me tell you, there's thousands of us uh, sending our love all the way to Toronto. We'll start this half hour with a word that we can't say on the radio. And, and we're our, not allowed to we're say not, it. We're not. We'd love to say it. Oh, I have said it. 
off air. Oh, I think we both use it at least once or twice in a day <laughs> with venomous social media, resurgent authoritarianism, and rampant narcissism threatening, pardon me, to trash civilization as we know it. Lots of five-syllable words in there. The time has come for, and this is a modified pronunciation of the title of the film, A-Holes, A Theory. When you elect on your country, what you get is someone who frames everything around their own needs. I do not use crack cocaine. Yes, I have some crack cocaine. We have seen it spread into other countries. The example of Berlusconi is, again, a perfect one. His wealth, his girlfriends, his parties, is proof of what you can achieve if only you let your selfishness fly free. Why people haven't stopped him? What, what has happened to us in witchcraft? If you give a 24-year-old $100 million, I, that's just going to enable bad behavior. It's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. He really means it. I mean, he knows how to apologize. That's not something I really know how to do, right? I think the great mistake is to listen to them when they start telling us how we should live. So the movie is inspired Everybody by... Everybody else seeing oh. what they're getting in life? I'm choosing to be an go. See, lots of people make this decision on their own. Inspired by Aaron James's New York Times bestseller of the same name, Aeols investigates the breeding grounds of contemporary <clears throat> culture and locates signs of civility in an otherwise rude and nasty universe. So venturing into a predominantly male domain, Walker moves from Ivy League frat clubs to the bratty princedoms of Silicon Valley and bear pits of international finance. And Asking some really important questions like, why do jerks thrive in certain environments? How do they keep getting elected? Lively commentary is provided by the likes of actor John Cleese, Italian LGBTQ activist Vladimir Luxuria, who famously locked horns with Silvio Berlusconi, and our next guest... Former RCMP officer Sherry Lee Benson-Padolchuk, good friend of this radio station. Sherry, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Holy crow, that is uh, quite the list of uh, individuals to be associated with. How did they track you down to be involved in this film? Well, uh, John tracked me down through my TED Talk. He was uh, doing some research about a-holes and uh, bullying, and he found, uh, I think his assistant, and he found me uh, from my TED Talk and asked me if I wanted to be part of this. And, of course, speaking up about bullying slash a-holes is something I've been doing for many, many years and trying to help uh, my own organization and the people in the organization and now people anywhere who are dealing with a-holes and bullying. And so I was more than happy, more than happy to be part of, of the documentary. Just for background for our listeners, Sherry, your push has always been to come out and share your stories of harassment within the police service, within the RCMP, and that ongoing pursuit to sort of get rid of that old boys club, as it were. Absolutely, and the what the what if you, when you watch the documentary, which is in Winnipeg this week, you'll see how that the uh, a holes tend to hire other a holes, and then you end up with a culture of uh, of that, that kind of a holes, and then you, it's very difficult for anybody to try to speak up or try and change that culture. You have to get rid of them one at a time. So, what is the attraction in this? You know, as we go through looking at these different, and I. As an aside, haven't had so much fun in hearing how many times we're trying to avoid saying this word. But as we try yeah. to, do you want to go with jerks? Yeah, we can go the a holes, the jerks. Okay. You know, as we try to go through all of this and figure out what is the attraction there and and how these how people like this with these types of personalities seem to rise 
above. Is there an answer? Well, there's no. It, they basically have grown a grown up thinking that they are every day is their birthday. So every day, everything is all about them. In other words, they have no accountability. There's never any consequences, and so they go through life. And people, because most people, I don't like you know dealing with conflict. Most people don't. So we just sort of ah oh, well, I'm only working with him for part of the time. I'm only working with this person for a project. So when I'm when I, he's gone, I, I don't have to worry about it. And that's the wrong kind of attitude. When we need to push back against these jerks, and that's the whole reason why John uh, John Walker did this did this documentary. I mean, there's 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 the humorous part of it, but it's a serious element of our society. When we don't speak up about bullying and these kind of jerks, then they uh, they continue to move through life, and they have collateral damage, which is if they get in positions of power. They can, with a stroke of a pen, they can destroy people's lives. They can, you know, uh, c- totally disrupt a, a different, uh, like a community. So the idea is that we need to speak up. As hard as it is, we need to speak up against these jerks. Sherry, we often hear the saying, uh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. That, that's different than being a, a jerk, right? Oh, absolutely. A jerk, a jerk is somebody, uh, and you'll see in the, in the film here, is someone who really, truly believes that they are entitled to do, say, whatever they want. They're, they're, it's their right to cut you off in traffic. It's their right to step in front of you in a line. And they have no problems about that. They have no problems yelling and screaming at you, humiliating you in a group and thinking it's fine. Even if someone says, excuse me, you hurt my feelings, they think, too bad. That's your problem, not mine. So uh, it, the documentary in itself is going to raise a whole host of questions for anyone who goes and views it. Yes. For anyone out there listening uh, who's been through this sort of course of jerks in their life and is thinking, how do I stand up, rise above, make difference, affect change? What's, do you have one piece of advice? Because you've been working on this for decades now to eradicate the workplace of this type of personality. Yeah, the, you know, the workplace and, in, and in, in society in general. So basically, know that you have the right to speak up. And it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So, for example, though, what do you mean by that? Like, how you say well, it? So, you know, standing up and yelling right back, that's not going to solve the problem. You can speak in a very calm, respectful way, but have, have, have your voice, whatever that feels like for you. Because it can be terrifying the first time you speak up to a jerk. Always be, I always tell people to maintain, you know, safety. So you're not going to do that in the middle of, uh, on the highway when someone cuts you off. That's kind of dangerous. But to be, to know that you have the right to speak up and, and, and use your words. I mean, we teach our children to use our words. Detach from the jerk because that's their stuff. And no matter what you say, they may not change, but at least it's a sense of empowerment. And the more people who speak up, it doesn't mean it's going to change their behavior. A jerk will always be a jerk. They're usually the last people to figure that out, that they're a jerk. No matter, even in their old age, they'll think it's, it's been everybody else's fault why they uh, don't like that and why they don't like them. And so the idea is to, if everyone speaks up, you can't change them, but you can certainly make it uncomfortable for them to be jerks in public. So, I mean, a really good example we saw in South America just yesterday. Bolivia has been protesting the actions of their president to the point where he got the hint. He got out of the country. <laughs> That's an extreme. So you're absolutely, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And, it, and, and, I, and speaking from the RCMP organization, it took a lot before people started to speaking speak up and now they are making the changes they have their first female commissioner and she's she's taking outside advice on how to create a a more positive workplace culture 
is it fixed? No. Is it going to be fine for, you know, the next five years? No. It's probably going to take a whole generation of officers as we weed out the jerks. One more thing I just want to add, and I'm, I'm speaking sure. to you now, just more woman to woman and for the other women out there. I think one of the challenges remains that when you do stand up, often... More often than not, as a woman, you're also put into a category of being... You're a troublemaker. A troublemaker or assertive or shrill or demanding. And so you come across... You're or pe- pe- People paint you in the jerk category as opposed to recognizing that you're just, you're just trying to demonstrate that the behavior coming at you is unacceptable. That's right. And, and so this is, you know, if, yeah, speaking up because you don't want someone pushing you up against the wall and kissing you or grabbing you, grabbing your crotch at a, at a party and everyone laughing. That's a little bit different than someone who walks into a, walks into a building and thinks everybody has to cater to their absolute every need. And even though it might be illegal, immoral and, and unethical, they still feel that everyone has the right to treat them a certain way where every day is their birthday and it's always about them. So women, yes, we have a different kind of challenge. And I always still encourage them to always speak up. A-Hole's a theory. It's a movie. It was a book first. Now it's a movie. And one of the featured presenters, interviewees, is our guest, RCMP, former RCMP officer, Sherry Lee Benson-Podolchuk. We always love uh, chatting with you, Sherry. Thanks for this. Six screenings coming up. This means they're anticipating big, big, big crowds at Cinematheque. It starts tomorrow night at 9.30, Thursday night at 9.15, Friday at 7, Saturday at 3, Sunday at 3, and next Wednesday at 7 p.m. winnipegfilmgroup.com if you want to get the lowdown on the screenings at Cinematech. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.